Our survey showed overt solicitation and overt recommendations. I mean, we had moms saying they were told it's required. Required. They were bad mothers if they didn't. That You're listening to The Brendan Murata Show. In this episode, I talked to George Ann Chapin, Executive Director of Intact America, about new survey data which shows that doctors are pushing circumcision more than ever. We also talk about the role of money in activism and the systemic aspects of the medical machine and need for strategy to reach a social tipping point. Now, here is George Ann Chapin. So what is new in the world of Intact America? Is there anything that you've been up to this past year that that our audience really should know about? Yeah, actually, yes. Let me say first how happy I am to be doing this interview with you. And your podcast is awesome, Brendan. And I think it's a, a really great thing to be doing. Yeah, Intact America continues to evolve with the times. And this past year, uh, there have been a couple of really, when we say past year, the past, say 2020, 2021, some pretty interesting things happening. We were very fortunate in early 2020 to receive a bequest from a donor who passed away and had been really very supportive of us all along. And it it allows us to do some things that have been difficult for us in the past, particularly the surveys that we've been doing, which, which are great and necessary, but quite expensive. And we were able to do a new survey in 2020 on uh, solicitation. We've been hearing for years about how doctors have been saying for years, you know, you got to tell the parents to stop wanting circumcision. No, it's not us. We don't like it. So we did a survey and I'll tell you about that in a bit. That was our probably our fourth or fifth survey since we've been in operation. And uh, another thing is that we just announced about a week ago, that on July 1st, we're going to be merging with Genital Autonomy America, which is the successor organization of NOSERC, founded by Marilyn Milos in the mid-80s. And Marilyn is going to be coming on the board of directors of Intact America. She's been a consultant with us for a long time, a clinical consultant. I When we get questions, uh, foreskin or, or penis problem questions, anatomy questions, treatment for common or uncommon pathologies or feared pathologies. I always send them over to Marilyn because she's she's a world expert, you know, on the topic. So Marilyn decided that she wants to finish writing her book and administering GA America. She's she's kind of, you know, thinks that at the stage in her life she'd like to stop that. So we're emerging officially as of July 1st. Excited about that. And then the other things that we're doing, we're, we're actually going to launch another survey shortly to follow up on the solicitation survey, targeting health professionals and really trying to stop the solicitation. I think the data we got on solicitation was extremely significant. It showed that what we've been hearing anecdotally is even worse than we imagined. And the other thing it showed is that the circumcision rate, unfortunately, is higher than we all believed and feared. Um, It was a nationwide survey with very good confidence ratio, and we think it's accurate. So those are some of the new things. And we're just really, even though any of us in this movement wishes we were farther along in getting this practice stopped, I think there's a, a lot of value in knowing what we're up against and not kind of 
deluding ourselves into thinking that our grassroots demonstrations are, are going to make a huge difference quickly. We need a very, very, very organized and well-funded strategy, just like every human rights movement has. And uh, that's what you know we're trying to, to pursue and working you know in tandem with the other organizations that are all doing really good work. So there's a lot of really interesting pieces of news there. I, I didn't know that there was a merger happening between Intact America and Genital Autonomy, which is formerly no sir. No, right. But I, I want to first ask about the survey because that's really interesting that the data is indicating that it's actually worse than the antidote. Because usually when someone wants to dismiss the things that activists report, they say, oh, that's just anecdotal. The idea being that, well, you guys have all these stories, but surely it can't be that bad. And it sounds like what you discovered is that it's worse. So it is worse. What what were the results of that survey? and, And what exactly does that mean? So our survey was to determine, we surveyed moms of boys born in the past four years. And we asked them if during their pregnancy or after, you know, when they were in the hospital or shortly after the birth, they were asked if they wanted to circumcise their sons. And we found that 94% of moms were asked at least once. And the average number of asks that they reported was eight times. That went in from prenatally. We had an anecdote of a mom who on her 17-week sonogram, found the fetus was was male, and they asked her and indicated on the sonogram form that she wanted a circumcision for this as yet unborn child. And and then in the we, we did not get enough information about where each of these solicitations took place, and we're going to be doing a further investigation of that. But that the average again was eight times, and then we had a section at the end for open responses. You know for people to to write in what they and this was a Qualtrics survey which is a highly respected surveying firm it was a randomized nationwide survey we picked i believe 13 states rather than doing all 50 states because we wanted a significant enough number from each of the states so we picked states in the in each of the four census regions of the country and so we had you know i don't have the states in front of me but among the states we did was uh, washington california new york florida massachusetts colorado illinois missouri i'm just not recalling all the states here but texas of course large states and states that were geographically dispersed and didn't find a tremendous difference among the states in the amount of solicitation. There was some. When we looked further, we found a significant difference in our racial and ethnic data. So Latina women were solicited more than white women and black women were solicited more than white women. And so so that's the, the one part that there was 94% were solicited. We also asked the mothers, if you had not been asked, would you have brought up circumcision? Would you have requested it? And more than 40% said they would have, which is kind of sad, right? But what's more horrifying is that nearly 80% said that after being asked, they agreed to it. So when we extrapolated, when we, we calculated what that meant, we calculated a circumcision rate of about 75%. And that is more than the figure that's been tossed around now for years 
And it also shows that when we say the circumcision rate is not is going down, we really don't didn't have the evidence of that. So, you know, first I see this and we're very careful in analyzing the results. You know, we have the help of a statistician and we went over it very carefully. The survey was very carefully designed. And my first reaction was, was to despair, you know, like, and then I pretty quickly said, you know, no, it's good to, good for us to know this. So easy when you're doing this work, like you're going to a baby fair and you're talking to moms, some few people come up to you and tell you how great it is what you're doing. And that's not unimportant. That's really inspiring for that intactivist. But it's easy to then believe that you're making a difference in the overall rate of circumcision. You did save that mom's baby, and that's really important. And you might have saved, that mom might have saved her friend's baby. But in terms of the massive scope of this problem, we're not making a dent. And it's good for us to know that because that means our strategy has to change. And that's what we are in the process of uh, figuring out Intact America, and a lot of this is talked about on our website, intactamerica.org. So I encourage your listeners to to look at. We can put the survey in the show notes at the end of the episode. That'd be great. We'll do that. Uh, We'll put the um, well. We'll put the press release and the report. The raw survey is, you know, and the data is hundreds of pages long. Which, by the way, we would make available to researchers if they want. We're not trying to hide any of this. We're trying to to responsibly disseminate it. So. So it's just really important for us all to understand that what the problem is. The problem is this thing is, you know, this is the big tobacco of this human rights issue. And to talk about, you know, educating the moms, which is what everyone's first advice is. You know, the doctors tell us, oh, you got to go to the moms. PR people say, oh, you know, you got to have a parent education. It'd be like, it's like educating, you know, the 12 year olds about vaping. You got to stop the people who are selling because you can't, it's it's sort of a blame the victim or blame the target, let alone the baby being the victim. So it's really, really important for us to, for us to recognize that the reason this thing continues is because there's a vested interest on the part of the medical establishment in selling it. And there are different reasons why they have a vested interest in selling it. It's not just because individual doctors make money off of it. That's part of it. But this is much bigger than that and much more, much more pervasive, much more. The incentives, the financial incentives are important, but the sort of psychic environment of circumcision is just as, if not more, toxic, pervasive, and and essential for us to address. So I want to get to what changes in strategy or ways of creating change this survey implies. But before that, I want to ask some questions about the data itself, because there's a saying that any change requires first seeing reality as it is and being grounded in it. It sounds like that this survey has really helped you and the other activists you work with do that. So if, if I heard correctly, 40% of parents said they were going to circumcise anyway, but that 80% chose to circumcise after being about asked. About 78, right. About 78% chose to circumcise. So it sounds like solicitation nearly doubled 
170, my, my initial numbers might be a little bit off. It was a couple of percentage points more than 40, and it was a couple of percentage points less than, than 80, but it, the calculation was a 173% change in circumcision rate due to solicitation. And eight solicitations being average, which yes. I, I remember when uh, I was growing up in the church, I heard that someone had to hear the gospel uh, 50 times before they converted. So <laughs> that sounds like you're you're nearly a fifth of the way to actually completely changing someone's religion with that many solicitations. <laughs> well, actually, what was interesting was it didn't take eight to change people's minds. Even one, even one solicitation made a, a huge difference because it carried with it a pressure, the notion of medical approval. And the, the sellers were uh, doctors, nurses, and, and nurse midwives, uh, all of them. Uh, doctors more, nurses somewhat less than doctors, but midwives somewhat less than that. There are fewer of them also. That, that was numerical, right? So those were the sellers. So it didn't take much to get parents to say, oh, okay. So our position is even the presence of a consent form in the package of registration materials or in the OB's office prior to birth is a solicitation. And I know there's a lot of resistance to seeing that on the part of healthcare professionals. Like, well, we have to have the consent form because, but in countries that don't circumcise, they don't have a consent form in the packet. They don't tell anyone, oh, you got to educate the parents. The parents have to understand about the foreskin. Well, no, they don't. None of that is true, except that we have this circumcising culture and we have been told that it's our fault, the consumer's fault for this culture, right? That if only parents knew more, if they understood more, even the admonitions that intactivists give to parents, you know, do your research. It's like in, in France, they don't have to do any research. They research on what, you know, like they, do we do research on, you know, fingertip removal or routine appendectomies? No, you know, it's, this is a medically useless and unnecessary procedure. Why should anyone anticipate that something like this is going to be pushed on them? And if they fail to do their research, then they're somehow at fault. No, I think I digressed. Well, it sounds like what you're describing is something I've actually been writing about in the next book I'm working on, which is the asymmetric power difference between doctors and mm -hmm. parents. So parents are told this is a parental choice, but they didn't choose to create this massive billion-dollar industry. They didn't manufacture right. the circumcision tools. They didn't train medical graduates in it. They didn't create an entire sales funnel around birth right. that leads people to this choice. Their only choice is to write a signature on something at the end. And then all of the responsibility is placed on that and none on the person who's created this massive right. power structure behind it. Right. None on the, 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 the players, creators of the massive power structure. And actually practically none on the people who actually do the cutting, right? Or set it up, who prepare the room, who lay out the equipment, who strip down the baby, who tie down the baby, and who pick up a scalpel or a clamp or whatever and cut that baby. It's all, well, you know, we wouldn't be doing it if the parents didn't want it. So yes, you are so right. And it's even more horrible, you know, than, than I think a lot of us want to believe. So what, what were the conclusions that you drew from this survey 
and the changes in strategy that you think might need to happen as a result of this information? Well, you know, we're, we're working on that now. And I, I would be lying if I said we knew exactly what to do. We did convene a group of colleagues, essentially, in the fall. We had several meetings about it. And we've been, I've been personally writing to various people both close colleagues and also someone who might write to me, you know, and, and I'll say, you know, well, what do you think? So you have to look at the resources you have because, you know, this is a Super Bowl ad size campaign or a, it's a massive problem, massive campaign, and we obviously don't have massive resources. So we are thinking right now, I guess I can say this, I mean, we haven't made a decision for sure, but we believe that nurses are a very critical piece here because they're part of the sales machine, but they don't reap any of the financial benefits. You know, they are simultaneously told that they're, you know, they have responsibility for the quality of care for the patient. And very interestingly, nurses are told that the family is their patient, this holistic nursing idea. And that that's a completely inoperative concept when it comes to circumcision. That's a, a complete fallacy. You cannot have the family being your patient if part of the family is being asked to sign off a bodily invasion on another part of the family, right? So we know that nurses are are charged with this tremendous responsibility and they're not getting any, as far as we know, any compensation for this. But And that's what our, our coming upcoming survey is going to ask. It's going to ask about what the, like, what the rules are. How does it work? You know, are you, is it part of your job description? Is it just the culture? What happens if you don't want to participate? What happens if you don't want to ask the mom? What happens if you don't want to prep the room, if you don't want to assist at the circumcision itself? We know that conscientious objection exists in medicine, but probably implemented or taken advantage of very, very little. So I don't think that's a practical solution. So that's what we're going to explore. And then based on what the this nurses survey shows up, we've already done a little bit of outreach to nursing organizations because nurses are also the same time that they are followers, you know, they're also leaders, you know, in the in the medical setting. So we believe that, and they also have a strong, if conflicted, they have a strong body of ethics. And the conflicts in it are very obvious, but that's not anyone's fault. Is it some? But we think it's something that we could have some conversations about with nurses. It sounds like you're trying to identify their role in the larger system. Another thing that arose in 2020 was a lot of discussion of systemic issues and specifically systemic racism and the mm -hmm. idea that larger cultural issues might not merely be the result of specific individuals, but cultural systems. Right. And it sounds like the medical system is might have an interest in continuing to profit from circumcision, but the oh, individual absolutely. actors in that system may or may not. And you're, it sounds like with this next survey, you're going to try to identify exactly what role they play in the system. Is that accurate yeah. to say? Uh, that's pretty good. That's pretty accurate. I mean, one of the things, of course, that the case is that it's very it's very complex because I mean actually no two hospitals are alike and no two labor and delivery units are alike and no two states are exactly alike. So we're going to try and 
unearth some of that and see if we can, based on that, generalize or find some generalizations we can make that are actionable. Uh, We know also, and this we know more anecdotally, we have not surveyed this yet, but we know that circumcision is moving from hospitals into uh, private practices. So more and more, I mean, when I started this work, I don't think I heard at all about moms who were making an appointment with their pediatrician for a circumcision, you know, two weeks after the birth. Now that's common. And that imposes another set of problems to investigate and potential roles for other healthcare professionals, especially nurses. So we're, we're just trying to get our arms around this. You know, you could just like spray the side of the barn, you know, you could just with with buckshot. I mean, you could, you know, write to every nursing organization in every state and say, you know, you all have to stop this. And that doesn't tend to be very useful. And it's very hard to follow up on something like that. I mean, you can send out 10,000 emails in an afternoon by a mailing list and send them out. But what's your follow up? Uh, and so we're we're trying to launch something that's manageable and that will permit us to have conversations with the players, not just kind of target, you know, not just outbound stuff, but actually have some dialogue. Figuring out how to talk to them, not just at them. Talk with them. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. I do know that that all the tactics that the intactivist organizations use, even the ones that we don't engage in, some which we maybe used to engage in, but don't anymore, and some which we never engaged in, they all have a use. They all have a, they all play a role, but the role might not always be what we think it is, what I think it's going to be. So, you know, standing on a street corner, an AAP conference, and assailing everyone who walks by you with a badge as a butcher and as not caring. And we don't know who these people are. Some of them are vendors. Some of them probably don't do circumcisions, you know, don't do circumcisions. Most pediatricians really actually don't. It's you're making a a point, but you're not necessarily changing anything. So if you're you're not changing anything with the people who you're assailing. I understand it. I mean I've you know we've done it. I but I think it's time for us, for Intact America, we need to move to a more sophisticated engagement with the system because the other thing that we make the mistake of is thinking that these organizations owe us anything and they don't owe us anything. I mean, AAP exists for the benefit of its members. Truthfully, if I write a letter to the executive director of the American Academy of Pediatrics, the only reason that person would even respond to me would be either politeness or in the hope it would somehow, you know, assuage my anger or something. But they don't owe us that. They're, we're not their members. We're not, we have no standing with them. So we have to think of other ways to call people to task and engage with people. So with this survey and the information you'll gather from the next survey, what's the process of developing a targeted strategy? In other words, once you once you get this information, how is it that you're going to figure out what tactics to use and which ones not to use and, I, and where I the think, greatest change is? You know, it's work in progress. We have some very smart consultants that we, some of them are people I've known for, you know, in my 35-year history as a healthcare executive. And, and and I'll talk to anybody you know who has ideas and we're very thoughtful and sometimes I feel a little bit like huh 
we thought we were going to do this. And now, you know, we think maybe that's not the way to go. So we're very much in flux as to how to how to mount this. And and the resources we need are obviously the, the resources we have are obviously a factor. Because, you know, another thing that's interesting about intactivism is that I got a note the other day from somebody who said was referring to somebody else in the movement and said, I thought this person was working out of the goodness of his heart, not because he was getting a paycheck. And I thought, wow, you know, like we're still the mentality that you have to work for free for it to be valid. And you look at these big movements that have succeeded, you know, whether it's civil rights movement, whether it's the LGBTQ movement, and all of these, the anti-slavery movement, uh, anti-racism, all of these Human rights causes move from being very fragmented grassroots efforts to being highly organized, well-funded efforts because you're up against huge forces that are constructed to work against you. So you just can't. So, so you have to respond to the establishment. In, you can respond to it in a very grassroots, decentralized way. And that, as I said, I think has its value. But you also need a highly organized, highly visible, highly professional uh, response to, I mean, all of us, you know, think maybe if I just set myself on fire, you know, steps of the wherever, you know, like somebody would pay attention. Not really, you know, right? I go, wow, she's out of the way. So we have to, we have to keep pushing. Another thing I'm doing, I, I think I should mention to you, I am writing a book. I, I wrote manuscript-length book a number of years ago. You might know this, Brendan, about circumcision and all the things that were wrong with it and the history. And it was talking from my perspective, what was done, it was so boring, you know, and, and our arguments are not that sophisticated. That's not the problem. We're right. We've said it all. And their arguments are BS, you know. So it's not like we're going to develop the magic bullet argument. We've got the magic bullet argument. Don't go cutting part of the penis off of a baby. I mean, what's more simple than that? So our challenge is not to refine our arguments or to find the slam dunk scientific response, because that'll never be adequate. It's, it's that we have to figure out how to dismantle the machine. That's what really our charge is. I love that phrase, dismantle the machine. Yeah, uh, I think I just said that for the first time. I, so I my wanna... book, my book is, I'll just finish that loop and then we can go back sure. to dismantle the machine. So I decided that maybe a more effective, more interesting way to talk about the movement was in the form of a memoir. And I'm, you know, thinking of John Lewis's memoir about the civil rights movement and Richard's. Uh, who was the head, I mean, I'm sorry, Cecile <laughs> Richards, and Richards was her mom, who was the head of uh, Planned Parenthood for many years. And she's an incredible advocate, awesome woman, wrote a great memoir. And I've read, you know, many memoirs of, of human rights activists and their story, you know, how they evolved. So this is the story of my evolution into being an intactivist and also of Intact America, which is, you know, my, the organization that I was privileged of being selected to run. And, you know, many other issues on the way that I hope will illuminate. For one thing, I hope it will would be read by more than, than intactivists, right? Because they know. They already know. <laughs> So my my hope is to create something that has a little bit more broad interest and that because stories are what really, you know, this as a filmmaker, stories are 
what really motivate people to change, to get engaged and to change. So being able to tell, I mean, you tell stories, you tell stories about your life, you know, you tell stories about growing up in the church, you tell stories about your, your marriage, we, you know, we know these, and that's very interesting for people. So what, what really got me to do this book in this way was going back to a conversation I had with a friend of mine who passed away in 2008, who was an anthropologist and a neighbor and very interesting thinker. And 2008 was when I first met Dean Pisani, who was the initial funder of Intact America. And I was deep in the organization of this new, this new thing. And she looked at me one day and she said, how did she's from Virginia? And she had a very heavy accent, even though she lived in New York her whole adult life. And she said, how did you get into this, this sort of fluttered her hands in the air. She was like 80 at the time. How did you get into this this penis business? So I'm calling the book This Penis Business because it was so apt, you know. It's a it's a catchy title, one that will probably make people stop scrolling to see what that's all about. Maybe. Yeah, I hope so. But also it is. It's a business, right? Circumcision's a business. Sex is a business. Intactivism is a business, if you want to get down to it, right? It's got all those qualities. So I, I that's what, you know, motivated me to, to write this book. I mean, I, it's going to be some time in the making, but I hope that it'll be out perhaps by the end of this year, or maybe early next year. That's exciting. I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I wanted to go back to the money question, because that's something that I get to every now and then I get an email saying, why do I have to pay, you know, $3.99 for this movie rental if I want to see your movie or, you know, those sort of things. And I think that that is a common attitude. It's one that I might want to do a whole show just where I have one person from each perspective talking to each other on that issue or on that topic. And so what I'm curious to know is how is it that you decide for your organization where to spend money and where to allocate it? And, And how is it that you respond to people who get upset about being asked for money or or feel like that money is not going to the things that they want it to go to or have their own particular issues or criticisms around money? You know, I don't engage in it in depth for the most part, because most people who really want to understand, who really understand what it takes for social change, that they have the choice of where to donate to. And that's completely, you know, fine. But people who say, you know, this should be all volunteer, you know, I just say, it's just not possible to, you know, volunteers, you know, you need, you need equipment, you know, you need materials, you need, you know, professional graphics, you need translators, you need all of these things, you need to, you need to pay people, right? You can't rely on pure volunteer labor, and at least not for any length of time. So that's one thing I say. And then how we make decisions. You know, we have a small group of people who are constantly questioning ourselves (laughs) about this. It's not like we just barrel through. And we try to figure out how to get the most impact for the money that we're going to spend. And what we have to have the money, right? People who are hostile about being asked for money, you know, we send out a lot of fundraising emails. And what I say to people who write me back is, you know, you're on our mailing list, which means you're going to get the newsletter. 
you're going to get any other announcements, like we sent out an announcement last week of the NOSERC merger. You're going to get those kinds of communications, and you're also going to get fundraising. Delete them. Just delete them. You know, I was an old dog when I started running Intact America. You know, I had been donating to causes I loved for many years, and I always felt very, very fortunate that there were people doing the work that I couldn't do, that I didn't have the time to do, but I was very happy to support, whether it was my college, whether it was my sister's therapeutic horseback riding center, whether it was animal rescue organizations. You know, those are some of the things that I've donated to over the years, whether it was NOSERC or Attorneys for the Rights of the Child, which I donated to before we founded Intact America. And I always felt fortunate and thankful, you know, thankful that there was an organization doing the work that I believed in. Now, as a donor, you still have to assess whether you really think that that organization is is the right one, right, for you. There are different motivations of donors. Some donors like to see one kind of activity or another. But, and I'm happy to tell people about what we're doing, like, you know, the survey and other survey and our letter writing campaigns. And, but when it comes to explaining, you know, why you, you need money, if Facebook is free, I would just ask somebody, you know, how much traction are you personally getting on Facebook? You know, (laughs) how many people in your, (laughs) you know, changed anything because of your personal Facebook profile? Probably not. So you need to promote your ideas. Uh, You need, you need to do it intelligently. You need to change with the times. Our messaging is very different from what it was in the beginning. You need to keep your website professional and updated. You need to, and then if you're going to engage in any kind of mass communication, that requires a tremendous investment. So if you had a really significant amount of money that suddenly came in in a donation tomorrow, where do you think the first place to allocate it is or to, that you would Well, you would right place now- Right. Right now we're, we're really doing research. You know, the, the surveys are, are important. And sometimes I feel like, you know, I want to take action, you know, on the survey, but we decided we were all ready to take action on the solicitation survey. And then we said, wait a minute, we got, again, limited resources. What action are we going to take? And what's the most intelligent, what's the most intelligent way of taking action? And what's the best target for that? So that's what, you know, that's what we are are doing. And in the meantime, we also, we do invest, you know, we do invest in fundraising. We do invest in, in graphic design. We were, we had a big presence in pride. We were spending a good deal of time and money. It's time too, right? Because you have your mm-hmm. people spending time and effort on pride. That kind of disappeared last year. And we're not quite sure what's going to happen this year, but that was a big effort. I just think to put in perspective, you know, Intact America was founded with a million dollar donation in 2008 and same sex marriage. One donor, Tim Gilnate, gave $450 million for that to come to fruition. And lots of other people gave money too, but Tim Gill alone gave $450 million, half a billion dollars. So before, you know, people dismiss the effectiveness of our movement, which, you know, has gotten, or our organization or our movement, which has probably mobilized, you know, total five or $6 million over a period of 20 years, right? I think it's important to keep in perspective. If all you had to do was be right and have an initial investment, you know, Coke and Pepsi wouldn't still be warring on the airwaves, right? The Your, your TV experience wouldn't be 35% commercials. If Allstate really was the best insurer or progressive or whatever, that just 
tell you once and hey, you know, they're done. So I think it's important to recognize that cause-related marketing is still marketing and requires all of the intelligence and strategy and assessment, reevaluation, changing of, of strategies requires all of that over time. You can't just expect to, and people, you know, I'm sure you've had this conversation a million times, Brendan. I think I got it. You know, someone will come, I got it. I got the message. I, I, I think if we just said this, you know, then everybody would get it. I, you know, I doc, talked to a doctor who said, if you just, you know, this, this is the message and we just need to start telling the medical residents it's going to spread like wildfire. Well, no anti-status quo message when the status quo is so heavily invested in by the enemy, if you will, right? No anti-status quo phrase, meme, or anything is going to topple the status quo. The tipping point comes, it might come suddenly, but it comes as a result of years and maybe decades and and a lot of strategy and a lot of money being invested in toppling the status quo. So that's our charge really as a movement. That's that's what we have to do. And it's tempting to think that that we're going to be successful with the right, the right phrase or the right zinger, you know, kind of. And those are important. I mean, phrases and zingers and messages are super important, but don't think you failed if circumcision didn't go down from what we thought was 58%, you know, it's higher than that, down to 2% in the five years since your organization was created or the 10 years. It's just not going to work that way. So I've heard you use that phrase tipping point before, Mm -hmm. and I was wondering if you could define what that is and what you think the path towards that is. Yeah, well, we didn't make that up, right? Um, that was Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point. And a tipping point is the, the time when a critical mass of people accept your alternative to the status quo. So in the case of intactivism, you want a critical mass of people or to accept that keeping a boy intact is fine, right? Not like the best things in sliced bread, but okay, good. Same-sex marriage is a great example of a tipping point because you didn't see this kind of gradual change in people's attitude toward gay people. You saw you know, a tremendous amount of money invested in it. And then you once same-sex marriage you know, was accepted as either good or fine, you know, not important, who cares, right? Face it, most people aren't passionate about same-sex marriage. And we don't need most people to be passionate about foreskins or about not circumcising. We need people to go, oh, yeah, okay, that's fine, that's good. And once a critical mass of people can accept that alternative to the status quo, that's when you see behavior change. And that's why it happens quickly. But it happens quickly, but after often many years or even decades, of work on the part of of activists. So Tipping Point is our strategy and everything written about social movements indicates that that tipping point in popular opinion, it's not majority, it's more like between 20 and 25% of people. There'll still be some active opposition, most people just won't care. Um, And that's that's what we are aiming for. And what we're doing to help reach that tipping point, for one thing we're measuring, right? just like we measured 
the, the survey and we've seen a change. We, we haven't done a tipping point survey in, or an attitude survey in a couple of years. And since we started doing it, we've moved from 12 to about 16% of people who are ready to accept the status quo, ready to accept the alternative to the status quo, which is that boys should be kept intact. They should accept that. But that's that's what we are. That's what we're aiming for. And what do you think the path to to that change is? Is it this sort of slow messaging over time? Is there something that would accelerate it more? I've heard a tipping point or social change described as a it's a bit like going bankrupt. It happens very slowly and then all at once. Right. So right. I'm I'm curious if there is something that gets people closer to that all at once faster or or in a way that's easier to do or is that still something that you're finding through the research and, well, and your own I think we're still working on it and I don't think we have the exact answer but I think that it's a big revelation that we're not I mean we're trying to change public attitudes but we are pushing a boulder uphill because of the the machine that we are that's overwhelming us right the kind of almost silent financial and cultural pushing of, of circumcision and the incentives, right? So that's what we're trying to figure out in how do we act on these survey results, right? So who are the power figures? Who are the authority figures? So in our case, unlike same-sex marriage, where ultimately you were looking for a legislative solution, a legal solution, right? I don't think we're ever going to have that with circumcision. I think that the religious, organized religion is going to, even in countries where there's almost no religious minority that pushes circumcision, they rise up, you know, if there's any talk about legislation against it. So I don't think we're going to get that. But I think that if we can realign incentives or recruit help from the participants in the machine, and that's why we're thinking now that nurses are a good are good allies here. You know, as as people start, par- there aren't enough parents to make the tipping point happen. You only have what maximum four thousand four um, million births a year in a country of three hundred forty million people. It's like I, I once heard same sex kindergarten has the smallest constituency of any political issue. I mean, did I say same sex? All day kindergarten. Sorry, all day kindergarten has the smallest constituency, because once your kid's out of kindergarten, you don't care anymore. And we have a lot of really passionate moms, but they don't, they're passionate, you know, about keeping their babies intact. And, and some of them become ongoing activists, but most don't, they go back to their family life. So we need to recruit and bring along people who are part of the machine and get them to tell us what it would take to to break the the cycle that they're in and to dismantle the incentives. Some of that change could happen with big financial changes in our healthcare system. I think that some of those are underway. I don't think we're going to have a universal healthcare system. You know, most of the countries that don't tolerate circumcision have a universal healthcare system where all the incentives are aligned, you know, unnecessary things aren't paid for. And doctors don't get compensated for doing unnecessary things. We don't have that in this country. Nonetheless, there are financial pressures. Right now, what you're seeing is the hard sell is partly because I believe, but we don't have the data on this. We did ask parents, the moms, who paid for the circumcision. Um, We found it was a mix of self-pay and 
third-party payer, either Medicaid or private insurance. And there's something I'll say about that in a moment. So we ask that, but we think that the hard sell is also to get parents to pay, even when their insurance company says no. And that will erode possibly over time, unless you know you can really just convince people they got to have it. So you know, all of those things come into our. I, I'm I'm kind of trying to think. Think I'm trying to give you really thoughtful answers. We're we're struggling with this ourselves into how to best address it. As somebody who worked in in healthcare and Medicaid for years, I ran a Medicaid managed care plan in New York. I see the efforts to get Medicaid to stop paying for circumcision in various states to be ineffective. And that's partly because people in this country are very confused about the way healthcare is organized. It's easy to be confused, but might be of interest to people to know that California has never paid, California Medicaid has never paid for circumcision, which means that if you send a bill to California Medicaid, for circumcision, for routine circumcision, California Medicaid won't pay it. Well, guess what? California Medicaid doesn't pay for anything fee-for-service. They farm it all out to private insurance companies to manage care plans, and the managed care plans can do whatever they want. So Kaiser Permanente in California pays for routine circumcisions, whether it's for their Medicaid patients or their you know employer-based patients. If, if the employer wants it, right? That's part of their negotiation. It's my understanding that many of the managed care organizations in California pay for circumcisions, for routine circumcisions. In New York, a decision on the part of legislators to not pay, which will never happen because the religious lobby is too strong, but wouldn't make much difference. The private insurers will keep paying for it. As soon as you see something in insurance lingo described as a benefit, you know, that's literally what we call what an insurance company pays for. It's a benefit. As soon as you see something described as a benefit, then to suggest that you don't cover it means you're depriving somebody of a benefit. And that's very much what a lot of the discussion around Medicaid and, and insurance companies paying for circumcision is. So that's an interesting use of the word benefit because very often people who are pro-circumcision will talk about the quote-unquote benefits of circumcision. Right. Is that language benefit chosen because it's also insurance company language? Or is oh, that yeah. just a, okay. I think so. You mean chosen by like the AAP that says the benefits outweigh the risks? Yes, and, and organizations like it. that. I don't know if they choose it for that, but but it's instructive to, to know that what follows that like, for example, in the AAP 2012 task force report is that and the benefits are sufficient to justify financial access to the procedure, which means to justify insurers paying for it. Hmm. So the AAP is there. That just tips their hand completely. Right. They want doctors to get paid for circumcision. So they throw into their so that the AAP's argument goes benefits outweigh the risks even though the risks have never been systematically studied and the benefits are sufficient to warrant financial access to the procedure, which means insurance companies and Medicaid paying for it. And then the next step when it comes to poor people and, you know, is that you wouldn't want to deprive poor people of this benefit. So that's why you have Medicaid funding. You wouldn't want people to be stigmatized by not being able to get that beautiful circumcision just because they don't have the money. This would be an, an example of how low-income boys would actually truly benefit if Medicaid didn't pay for circumcisions. But, you know, that's just, you know, 
It sounds like part of the challenge you're facing is just how complex this system is, where Medicaid says, we don't cover it, but there are these private insurance companies that do. And a lot of the language has a double meaning where it might be saying what most people would think of as a medical benefit, but it's also talking about financial benefit. Talking about a be- the benefit being financial compensation to the doctors. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, you could torture this to death, but but the, the, the truth is that part of the AAP's advocacy is to get payers to pay for this medically useless and harmful procedure. G- going back to the original survey, one of the data points in there that sounded interesting to me was the fact that they solicit more from certain racial groups than others. You know, there's a big push in healthcare right now to talk about health equity or or racial disparities in healthcare. And it just, there's, there's something there that seems like systemic racism and that they're targeting certain groups more Mm -hmm. for this particular procedure. Is yeah. am I reading too much into that or is that No, no, I don't think you are. I think what we don't exactly know is the content of that, right? Mm. So I could guess that a couple of things that are going on. One is I, I'm speculating, right? Sure. I don't want anyone to think so. So, you know, this is intact America. We're not in this the is, official business. This is not an official statement. This is right. George this Ann is having a easy. conversation <laughs> where she suggests right. a potential theory off the cuff. Right. So, well, more than off the cuff, because I think about this all the time. And I think that that because there is solicitation that and because patients are treated differently, depending on their ethnicity, their perceived ethnicity, which isn't necessarily the same as their ethnicity, and their perceived or misperceived acculturation or level of education and with discriminatory assumptions that like, okay, I've got this in brackets, uneducated black mom. She doesn't know. She doesn't know, you know, so I'm going to have to push her really hard. I'm going to have to make her think that circumcision is really important because it's really important for hygiene because she's going to be very sensitive to the implication that black people, you know, aren't clean. And this is a historical bias, against black people in this country, right? Against poor people too, right? Mm-hmm. That So if the main argument for circumcision, which kind of always defaults to, is hygiene, then this is something that somebody who is you know, doesn't want to be thought of as ignorant, dirty, or even just a pain because of who they are, might go for. We also found that uh, Latina Latinos were pushed more. Now that w- they would be from traditionally non-circumcising cultures, so again, this investment in in acculturation—you know—that if you want to be a real American, I spoke to a mom today. She lives in Missouri. She's been in Missouri since she was six years old. She came from Mexico, and she said when her first son was born 16 years ago. They asked her, she said no, and they left her alone. And when her last two sons were born six and one year ago, she was literally badgered. She she thinks that things have changed, that the badgering has gotten worse. But, you know, she was very clear on this being a cultural, you know, problem that she said, this is, this is, her, her words were great. She said, we got it right. 
She said, Latin Americans got this one right. You know, we, we don't do that. And that's right. But she said the pressure is sort of to acculturate and to, you know, if you want to be a real American. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who was an OB in San Francisco. And it's so interesting because California has a lower circumcision rate, we believe, although our statistics didn't show it. <laughs> we believed. And we know that there are hospitals in certain parts of San Francisco where circumcision is not common at all. But the hospital he practices in, which is a high-end hospital in the city of San Francisco, he estimated to me the circumcision rates about 80%. And there are a lot of Chinese families and they are pushed, he said. And they, you know, want to acculturate. And he said, these are well-off people. These are not, you know, you know, poor immigrant laborers, these are. And so there's, a, again, a pressure to, to acculturate. So it sounds like there's a possibility that doctors have unconscious biases or identity prejudices that cause them to think certain... Or conscious, or conscious biases. Or conscious biases, yeah. that's true. Yeah. That cause yeah. them to think that certain parents coming in are uneducated or unclean or that they just don't understand American culture, which might cause them to solicit more. And I would guess that if you were to ask those doctors, even if they were, there was a conscious bias, many of them probably wouldn't admit to it. Right. But Well, I would, I would actually maybe state it a little differently which is that the machine wants to circumcise your child. So the machine uses whatever, whatever techniques Mm. or arguments or pressure or persuasion that will work. So when you're advertising makeup to a 13-year-old, it's different from your advertising makeup to a 60-year-old, you know? So these are, they're targeting their solicitation depend consciously or unconsciously depending on hmm. you know, so if you're if you know I live in New York and if you're if you're talking to 35 year old first time affluent moms you know you're going to use a different different messaging you know talking about how intelligent or let's you know 30 year how intelligent millennials are, how they really get it. You know, they do their research. And if you've done your research, you'll know that, blah, 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 you know, whatever right. it is. So I think it's a really concerted efforts, both conscious and almost instinctual and subconscious to, to sell this sucker, you know? And that's why you, that's why you have consumer protection, right? That's why you, don't advertise alcohol in movie theaters or wherever you don't advertise. That's why smoking, you know, you don't see it on TV commercials because a lot of this is subliminal and, and subconscious, you know, I I'd love to talk a little bit, Brendan, I don't know if we're going to have time, but I'd like to make sure we talk about also the fear and defensiveness that this, that this issue sparks in people. Cause I think that's also one reason it's easy to manipulate people, you know, because it's hard to have these honest conversations. If you have a father there, you know, who is defensive about having been caught. If you have a mom there who circumcised her first child and is embarrassed about it, or I think those all go into it also. And I think that so many people have been wounded by this practice that it, that goes into the, equation of how wounded by the practice and are either fearful or ashamed or angry about 
copying to that, right, or, or discussing it, that also goes into why it can be pushed on people, because we're not really having honest conversations. There's a lot of stigma still attached to those conversations, even between intimate partners, sometimes especially between intimate partners. And there's a, you know, a huge amount of harm that's been created among people and, and we're paying for that as a culture. And ironically, the harm and the stigma attached to the harm, rather than making it less likely that people will circumcise, are exploited to make it more likely that they'll circumcise. You know, well, your husband's circumcised, right? How, how are you, buddy? You know, how are you doing? Oh, right. I'm fine. <laughs> right. I like that phrase that you use of the machine being willing to use whatever it can, because sometimes that's identity or something about the person's race or background. And other times mm-hmm. it's their personal feelings, which it sounds like that's what you're getting at with this around their own potential circumcision right. or their partner mm-hmm. or their their feelings around becoming mm-hmm. a parent. Mm-hmm. I, I know because my wife is pregnant now. There's definitely moments. Where, yes. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Congratulations. Yep. Awesome. So in, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see how many of these I've, I've got done ahead of time so that the month that our child is born, they're all scheduled because I won't be getting a lot done during that month. <laughs> when is that? What month is that? August. Expecting August. August. Okay. You got time. Yes. <laughs> but there's oh. definitely moments during that where I'm like, I don't know I would really like someone to tell, explain what's happening and what I need to do. Cause I just, mm-hmm. there's, this is new. I don't know. So it made me a lot, understand a lot more why it is that when parents are in that in hospital environment where there's already this huge asymmetric power dynamic and someone says, this is what you should do. They go, okay, I guess if you say so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And also the mystification of, of the normal, in this country, you know, not just in this country, but perhaps more than in other places, you know, like, like I said, you know, why do you need instruction on care of the penis, you know, care of the penis and quotes like, you know, like you don't need, don't need instruction on, you know, care of your, of your earlobe or care of your fingers, this tremendous I mean, you know, the first thing we do when we get a new kind of shampoo is read the instructions. You know, what's it going to say? You know, wet hair, you know, squeeze shampoo into hand, put it on your head, rinse and repeat. Of course, you want to repeat because that's going to use more shampoo. Some things really don't require. The only reason they require instruction is because people have been so intimidated into believing that their instincts are wrong. And of course, this is exploited tremendously with circumcision with moms, right? Because I would venture to say that. 99.99% of mothers instinctually don't want to turn that baby over to someone who's going to cut their penis, right? So what does it take to overcome that instinct mm. and allow that baby to be to be taken away and violated in that way? The construct of what needs to happen to let to let that baby be taken away and cut is so powerful that it starts before we ever we don't know it's starting you know it starts with all of the rules and instructions and um, mystification of medicine and it's interesting because in a lot of ways we're more consumers are more savvy you know they search the internet for if someone says they need a gallbladder operation they'll search for you know gallbladder surgery and and they watch the TV commercials about all the drugs, 
but that's not necessarily empowering if there's an equal amount of really bad information out there. In some ways, or if or if the information they're getting is all about interventions, you know, like there are less drastic interventions for a type 4 skin. Well, you don't need any intervention for a type 4 skin in a baby. Just retract the foreskin just a little bit till you can see the, no, don't retract, you know, don't do that. And why would it occur to you to do that? You know, why does it occur to you to do that to a boy and not to try and peer inside the hymen of a girl? And it's because we've been told that, you know, that the penis is, you know, got to be the focus of, of everybody and the opening and crazy stuff, you know, it's so crazy. And that's, you know, that, that has never gone away for me, that sense that this is just the sense that it doesn't make any sense and that we've been so bamboozled into buying into the idea that, that you need to do this to a child. It sounds like an element of the system is separating people from their own instinctual knowing. Yep. And that, you know, that used to be done by telling people I'm the doctor, I'm the expert. And now it is done through a more covert method of confusion of, I'm just going to flood you with information. And I almost wonder too, to what degree the increase in solicitations is actually a result of or response to that. In other words, it used to be they it was just assumed that this was something you're going to do. And because of the efforts of intactivists and because of the greater access to information, people now see it as something that they have to make a decision on and that's something that they're deciding less to do. So it's almost like the system has responded by asking more because asking is now what they know that they have to do, but it's still the same attempt or the same outcome intended. Right. And throwing a million facts at people. Like, you know, you read that, I don't even want to promote it, you know, the 2012 AAP task force report, which is officially expired. I think they're I think their policies expire after five years, but nothing says, you know, nothing has a use-by date. The AP report doesn't say no longer sellable after 2017 or whatever. But pages and pages and pages on on UTIs and all the different sexually transmitted diseases and all this stuff. And, oh, my God. And, you know, most of it is completely irrelevant to infant circumcision, right? Almost all of it's completely irrelevant. So by piling all that in, you know, anybody could be excused from just like going, oh, God, you know, I don't know. And then somebody comes along and says, it's better, you know. Oh, okay. So, yeah, the confusion is very purposeful, I think. I really, I agree with, yeah, you're right. It's very overwhelming for people. All that information, most of which they don't need. Mostly they just need to say, wow, this is my baby. So beautiful. Can I just take him home now? You know, I'll know soon enough if something's wrong and the nature's pretty great and the foreskin's been there forever. It's pretty unlikely that we're going to have a foreskin problem here unless we start messing around with it. Even birth itself. I'm, I'm a believer in home birth and there's a lot of unnecessary things there. One of the, I'm giving a talk, which by the time this airs, It'll be in the archive for supporters of the show. I'm giving a talk on Michel Foucault and his work and using it to, and and one of the things he talks about is how power never really gives up power. It just becomes more obscured or more covert in the way that power is exercised. And it really sounds like that that applies to the things that hospitals have done, where it used to be, you do this, this is what you have to do. And now there's still the same tactics to 
push circumcision, they're just not as direct. So we're we're not telling you you have to do it. We're asking you. We're we're not telling you you should. We're just giving you all this information. But it still sounds like it's basically the same machine doing the same thing. It's just, it's not allowed to be as overt about it, but it still has the same intention. Maybe, but let's make no mistake. Our survey showed overt solicitation and overt recommendations. I mean, we Mm. had moms saying they were told that it was necessary. We had moms saying they were told it's required. It's recommended. Required. They were bad, bad mothers. If they didn't that, yeah, no, we, 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 there's a tremendous amount of unequivocal recommendation, all admonition. And we also know that's true with foreskin retraction. We did a survey last year on forcible foreskin retraction where we found that 44% of boys under the age of six had been forcibly retracted, most of them by a doctor or a nurse. And I mean, there's an example of, and forcibly retracted means they didn't say to the mom, I'd like to put my hands on your son's penis and push back his foreskin. Are you okay with that? No, forcibly retracted meant the mom is standing by maybe looking at whatever, you know, piece of paper, a sign on the wall, her phone, whatever, while the doctor examines a baby who's in the emergency room for something, or it's a well child visit. And all of a sudden, here's the child scream and looks and the doctor's forcibly retracted the foreskin. So no, I would, I think that what you're saying applies on a macro level, perhaps to more affluent people or people who are more educated, where they're kind of, you know, depending on the tone of the of the OB practice, you know, where like you're given a lot of, well, you know, you're really an intelligent person and I'm sure you've done your research, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But the moms who responded to our survey, plenty of them said they were told that it was, again, required, recommended, everybody does it. Required and recommend or required and that they're a had mother if they don't are very yeah. shocking to hear i mean yeah well that was true with the retraction too that um and you know there's a, a couple of lawsuits that are out there now about the retraction i mean one was settled a couple years ago in georgia where the mother flipped out when she saw her son had been forcibly retracted and he was bleeding and actually this mother i talked to today this mexican american mom i talked to today and then was told that that if she wasn't retracting the foreskin regularly, the child was going to have major problems. So, you know, again, your instinct is not to inflict pain on your child, who's the only thing a, a child at that age needs to do is urinate, right? With, that's the only thing he needs to do with his penis, right? So if he's urinating, he's fine. And the idea that you're telling a mom that not only what I just did to your child, the right thing to do, but you should be doing it every day too. Wow. That's a real sabotaging, undermining of a, of a parental, of a mom's instinct, which would be not to inflict pain on your child's genitals. So let's talk about the forced retraction thing for a minute, because that one is very bizarre in that there's no financial incentive for forced retraction, yet it's extremely common. There's no financial incentive and the American Academy of Pediatrics actually proscribes it. It says a a child's force, a boy's force should never be forcibly retracted. And that's in a fact sheet that that is available online. and, And yet you find nurses and doctors insist that this must be done. Why do you think? I think people are obsessed with penises. I think that the medical and nursing profession have been told that it's really important to 
focus that on the uh, baby boy's penis. I mean, I don't have a good answer for why people would do that. You know, I I know that not just baby boys. I think I told this story before. I had a friend who was in a car accident, and he was you know he was probably thirty five years old at the time and intact. He's from the Caribbean and uh, had terrible anxiety from the accident, terrible headache. And he was lying on you know, the table in the emergency room. The doctor's palpating his stomach and looks at his penis and says, you know what? You should have that thing taken care of because that's not good. Because he had his foreskin. Like, what? You know, this guy's been in a car accident. Right. Right? And, and I've heard so many stories like that about little boys. I don't, you know, why is this such an obsession? And that's really such a vexing problem, right? I mean, anything we can do, like, okay, we can, we want to get people to accept the alternative, which is to leave the kid intact. But why this obsession with the foreskin? Like the foreskin is simultaneously useless, doesn't do a man any good, must be removed, right? Or must be handled. I mean, how can all of those be true? I don't know. You tell me. I don't get it. Well, it sounds like in addition to there being a financial or in industry system, there's certain psychological systems that are going on too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In other words, when people talk about something like systemic racism, they're talking about not just large institutions that exist in the world, but also things that exist culturally and in language. And it sounds like this has something similar where there's large institutions in the world, but there's also language and thought patterns and cultural assumptions that are all coming together. And that part of the challenge you're having in terms of finding a strategy is navigating all those pieces to find the lever from which there's the greatest potential of change. Yeah, that that's right. And and it might be multiple levers, right? But both resources and 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 just strategy, you know, focus mean that you can't do it all at once. So what you want to do is find the places where you can make a difference that might then snowball or, you know, or make a difference, you know, in turn somewhere else. But it's it's very fascinating, right? I mean, you didn't I think most people who are who are in this movement didn't anticipate that it would take so long and also didn't really understand the depth of the problem and the complexity of the problem, let's put it that way. At the same time, you know, it's what has made it really interesting. It's made it interesting for for me, for sure. And and I think that that there are people who can be engaged on that level too, intellectually and socially, you know, this is a human rights issue. And I think it's, I really do believe, I think I might've told you this before. I do believe this is the human rights issue of the 21st century or one of the main ones. It's kind of a last ditch that we're talking about. And it's kind of astonishing that we're talking about a practice that's backed by a respected profession that wants to convince you that it's okay to cut sexual parts off of children. It's so um, outrageous, really. Thank you for listening to The Brendan Murata Show. If you liked this episode, please share it with someone else who would also like it, and then go on whatever platform you listen to the show on and leave a positive review. If you want to support the show directly, go to brendanmurata.com slash show and subscribe there. 
paid subscribers get special unreleased bonus material and live events that are only available to them. Once again, that is brendanmarada.com slash show. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you all later.